Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Mastering, where the finishing touches are put on music before it heads off to manufacturing and then into record shops, is always a bit of a dark art, but there are a handful of practitioners who manage to achieve some level of fame for it regardless. Matt Colton is one of them. After art school and a stint in radio, he found himself in a mastering apprenticeship in London and soon realized he'd found his calling. Though he, like most mastering engineers, works across genres, he's become a byword for wonderful sound and fantastic vinyl cuts in dance and electronic music, worlds this longtime fan of the genres is happy to inhabit. I sat down with Matt at Alchemy Mastering, the West London studio he co-owns, for a chat that shed light on his field. Your career in mastering starts at about 1997, mm-hmm. but I'm curious sort of about what led up to that. I mean, when did mastering sort of first get on your radar? Well, I, um, I started working in 1995 at the age of 19. I'd, I'd done a year at art college prior to that, um, which I, I kind of didn't really harbor major desires to be an artist. I kind of more wanted to like, you know, start a band and become a, you know, successful musician and and I thought art college might be a cool place to meet those kind of people and you know, I I loved art. I loved kind of creating stuff and that kind of thing. But um anyway, so I I did uh, like a year's foundation course at art college and I think the final nail in the coffin of my potential art career was when my tutor at the end of the year, when I said to him, yeah, he was he was kind of like, you know, you should go to Central St. Martins and do a, you know, do a, do a degree in fine art and that kind of thing. And, you know, I said, if I do that, you know, what am I going to be at the end of it? And he said, you'll probably be an art teacher like me. And I thought, yeah, thanks, but, um, you know, that didn't really appeal. So I, I kind of bummed around for about six months. Um, and then I ended up getting, uh, I mean, now it would kind of be called an internship, I suppose. Back then it was, I think it was called the Youth Training Scheme, YTS, which was basically a, a position in a radio station. 
whereby they kind of paid my travel and, you know, gave me enough money to buy a sandwich every day kind of thing. And I started there. And basically I was taken on, it seemed bizarre at the time, but I was taken on to write radio commercials in the commercial production department of this uh, radio station in um, Somerset, which is where I'm from in the southwest of England. And uh, I think really after about three months, it became apparent that I probably didn't have enough life experience to write radio commercials. And you're talking about actually putting the script together yeah, for yeah. these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they like asked me to write, you know, the garden centre is having a sale on lawnmowers. You need to write a 30-second script for it. I was 19. I didn't own a lawn. I had no interest in getting a fucking lawnmower. So I sort of struggled with that. But we also made the commercials in-house. And instantly, you know, I'd been I'd been playing in bands from the age of kind of about 11 years old. And, um, you know, from the age of about, I guess, about 15, you know, me and a couple of mates were programming. We had, uh, you know, computers like Amigas and Ataris and that kind of thing. And like really, really basic MIDI synths. And, um, you know, we do kind of programming and, and make tracks that way. So I was, you know, I was really interested in kind of technology side of recording and all right, making radio commercials wasn't exactly you know maybe exactly what I wanted to do but even so you know there was a studio it had microphones it had three tape machines in it, it had compressors and EQs and it had a desk and so I kind of I sort of started to wheedle my way into actually making the commercials instead of writing them and that sort of became my role in the radio station. Um, you know, I was the guy that made all the commercials, made all the jingles, um, you know, recorded all the voiceovers and that kind of thing. And, you know, I got into other sort of stuff about, um, you know, when there was an outside broadcast, I'd be, you know, the presenter would be off at wherever, Shepton Mallet Sheep Fair or whatever it was, you know, and I'd be in the studio pressing all the buttons kind of thing. And then I got my own show and, you know, I had a show for a year on the radio station. Um, and we got, uh, so I was there for two years. So sort of after I'd been there for about a year, we got um, an audio editor workstation. We got Sadie, I mean, it's possibly even Sadie version one. Um, it might have been like the first version of version two, 2.0 or whatever. I can't remember now, but it was, you know, a basic hard disk recording system which was absolutely amazing because, uh, you know, all of a sudden you could like automate the level of the music bed behind the voiceover. And, you know, I'd mixed all my commercials and all the trailers and everything. You'd mix them all live. So if you had two pieces of music, three voiceovers and say five sound effects all to get in in the right place in 30 seconds, you know, you'd mix it on the fly. You'd, you'd fire stuff in off different playback mediums and you'd have to do it all. And if you you know, messed up. If the last sound effect was in the wrong place, then you just rewound the tape and started again. Yes, all of this stuff that we take for granted now yeah, that yeah. computers are so integrated into the process. Yeah, yeah. I think it's hard to really picture how big of a game changer that must have been. Oh, it was amazing. It literally like blew my mind and everyone else at the radio station. And, you know, all of a sudden, just like the the kind of standard, just the quality of the work that we were doing in the commercial production department kind of leapt exponentially and we could just be so much more creative you know so that that was really cool but um in the meantime anyway so so this was between the ages of 19 and 21 and um 
I met a guy, uh, so I had a show on Saturday nights and there was another guy who I knew uh, worked in London during the week and he had a show on Sundays. You know, he, he used to, he lived in Devon in the southwest of England, sort of at the weekends. And he was, uh, I guess he's he's probably about 10 years older than me, maybe just under that, you know. So we were kind of, you know, we'd like go out and, and have beers and that kind of thing. And uh, he was a really cool guy. And um, we went down the pub one time, you know, one one weekend, like before my show or after his show or something. I can't remember what. And, uh, you know, he got a phone call on his mobile phone. And at that point, it was pretty cool to have a mobile phone, to be honest. Um, you know, it was probably the size of a suitcase. But, uh, you know, he, he, he kind of took the call and, uh, you know, it was a bit like... Um, Okay, yeah, so you two want to book me for two weeks in June. Um, oh, I'm on holiday then. Can you see if they'll, like, wait and, you know, we'll do it at the beginning of July? And, you know, he finished up the call and I was like, what the fuck do you do for a living? You've just said that you two have to wait because you're on holiday and, you know, you'll work with them when you get back. And don't get me wrong, I'm not, like, the world's biggest U2 fan, but in 1995, they probably were the biggest band in the world. Do you know what I mean? That was, um, you know, and for a, a, a kind of 19, 20 year old kid from Somerset, this was like fairly mind blowing. So he said, well, I'm what's called a mastering engineer. You know, I, 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 I do mastering, which I'd never heard of, you know, kind of sort of before the internet, mastering wasn't really that widely known, I don't think. And even after the internet, it's like people know that it exists, but probably not exactly what it is. Well, exactly, yeah. Yeah, but kind of back then, I mean, I'd made demos, you know, I'd been in recording studios, I'd done recording, and it, it didn't even cross my mind that, you know, what you took out of the recording studio wasn't, like, finished, do you know what I mean? It's, so even even back then, I had no idea. But anyway, so he, he kind of explained to me what mastering is or was or whatever and you know he was kind enough to say why don't you um take a day off work and and just come and hang out in my studio in london for you know a couple of hours and you can just kind of see what we do so uh i took him up on the opportunity and sat in in, in uh you know his lovely mastering studio in london um with like the biggest pair of speakers i'd ever seen and all sorts of like esoteric you know, looking equipment, vinyl cutting lathe and, you know, big desk, lots of buttons and lights and, you know, knobs and just kind of banging techno records coming out of the speakers um, the whole time. And, you know, I was just totally in awe and it just thought this, you know, I can't believe that this guy gets paid to sit here and listen to this music and, you know, have all this you know, all this gear to play with and stuff. I, I just thought it was the coolest thing. So you got it right away. Like the concept as he explained it to you. And then when you, when you sort of went oh, to the God, studio no. and saw it. No, 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 yeah. I had absolutely no idea. Well, got it was. as in, as in like a, it made sense. Like this stage in the recording process, like kind of intellectually made sense to you. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, yes, I suppose so. I mean, it's going back so long. It's probably difficult for me to f fully remember exactly what I thought about it. But yeah, I mean, you know, essentially the concept of, you know, everything needs to be collated into one master recording that is then sent to the factory. And then all the copies that go to the shops are made from that one master disc, you know, if it's a vinyl record or, you know, master tape as it was back then, if it was a, a CD release. Yeah, you know, that that 
kind of all made sense. I didn't, I'd just not thought about it. You know, it, it just hadn't, I had no awareness of it. So, well, just to take it back a step, but, you know, my old man had said to me, you know, when I was kind of on the dole and, and sort of scratching around and, and bumming around and, you know, a little bit sort of aimless in life, he'd sort of said to me, you know, you're going to be working for a lot, you know, a long period of time, you know, you're probably going to be working till you're 65, 70 years old, you know, maybe even more, who knows what's going to happen in the future. You know, it's the, it's the vast majority of your life is going to be spent at work and it would be great to be rich, but it's a lot more important to be happy. So you're better off finding something that you love to do because you're going to be spending most of your life doing it. If you get rich doing it, then, you know, that's double bubble. You know, you you, you sort of win um, always. But anyway, I'd kind of, you know, it was it was sort of really at this point, you know, having seen, you know, my friend's mastering studio, it, you know, I knew that I wanted to work in music and this seemed like, you know, I wasn't going to make it as, uh, you know, there'd been times when I'd hoped to be like a professional drummer and that kind of thing. And... You know, I, I kind of realised that I probably wasn't going to make it as a musician, um, but clearly there were other kind of avenues that I could work in music and I could get all those kind of things for myself in terms of enjoyment and being kind of a part of the music industry, you know, without necessarily having to be the star up on the stage. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, so I, I asked my friend, you know, I was like, well, OK, great. That's it. I want to be a mastering engineer. Thank you. How do I go about it? Like, where do I, where do I get these jobs? And uh, you know, he was like, yeah. To be honest, there aren't any jobs going. You know, it's it's virtually impossible to get into. I don't know, kind of how you would go about it. Maybe look in the back of the Music Week magazine, which is like a weekly industry paper. You know, and see if um, see if anything comes up. And you know, I was still working at the radio station at the time. We got Music Week every week, which was great. So the next, you know, the next copy came in, I sort it out, looked in the back in the sort of classified section and lo and behold, you know, trainee mastering engineer position available right to this PO box number. So, um, you know, I kind of sent all my stuff through and, um, you know, and sort of ended up getting the job basically, uh, which was at a studio called Porky's Mastering in um, Soho in London. And, uh, yeah, so I kind of, um, I started there at the age of 21, you know, moved from Somerset up to London and uh, yeah, just started, um, yeah, which was fantastic. You know, as a 21 year old, you know, working in the centre of Soho, you know, so much going on, you know, massive kind of culture shock and eye opener and uh, yeah, started work. Tell me about that traineeship. I mean, where do you begin? What's the first step in learning how to master? Well, I mean, I guess it it kind of it's different depending on who sort of teaches you, and and it would be different now from how it was then. But where I started at that point in time, Porky's consisted of one main studio, which was shared by the owner and another engineer called Paul, and in that room they did um, CD and vinyl work, and then they had two sort of ancillary rooms, which were CD only. And there were two engineers who operated those two rooms. And I was taken on by the two guys effectively doing the CD work because they wanted a, a sort of extra pair of hands. And, you know, I mean, initially, obviously, it's a lot of 
making tea and watching. But, and listening as well. Well, and listening, yeah, exactly. You know, seeing what people are doing and, uh, you know, I think one of the advantages that I had was they used a system called Sonic Solutions in the main room, which I knew nothing about at all. But in the two CD rooms back then, they actually, uh, they just started to use Sadie. And so I kind of came in and to a certain extent, I probably knew more about Sadie than anyone else in the company. The way I had, had applied it in my previous career was different from how you apply it as a CD mastering engineer. But in terms of, you know, generally knowing my way ar around it and, you know, how quick I was using it, I was probably, you know, in fact, usually people would ask me questions about it. Do you know what I mean? You know, even though I was essentially the T-boy. So, you know, that probably helped. Um but yeah, I mean, there was just just a hell of a lot of of just kind of, you know, sitting and and watching and listening. You know, I'd used EQs and compressors before. You know, went in the in the radio station, so I kind of knew, I knew what an EQ did. I knew what a compressor did. You know, I don't think I was very expert in using either of them, but you know, I kind of knew in theory if you want to make something more bassy, you add some more bass with the EQ and that kind of thing. But uh, you know, I remember speaking to um, to Paul Solomons, who was the kind of like the main engineer there, and a guy who sort of taught me most of what I know, I would say. And uh, you know, I, was, I remember saying to him at one point, "Okay, I get like how we change things. Like, you know, I've watched you, and uh, you know, you say like you put a track on, you like, okay, we just need to tighten up the bottom end and just you know maybe get a bit more presence out of it. Like, and I understand." you know, roughly like how you're doing that. What I don't understand is how you know that you need to do that. He was like, well, it's simple, I, you know, put the put the tape on, play it. And then if I think it needs more bass, I'll put more bass. I was like, yeah, but how do you know? Like, how do you know that you think it needs more bass? Like, this is, the, this is the thing that I'm struggling to get. And he was like, well, look, I've listened to a lot of records. The more records you listen to, the more obvious it becomes to you. But there's no shortcut to that. You know, there's no like, all you can do is just keep listening and keep listening and keep listening and keep listening. And the more you do, the better you get at it. I would imagine a lot of people would walk into a room like this one and immediately kind of look at all these different knobs and all these different boxes. And the first thought they would have is that's the hardest part about this job, but maybe not understanding that just being able to hear things a certain way and being able to translate that into work that you do with these boxes and the ways that you twiddle the knobs is maybe actually the hardest part, the part that takes the longest. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, speaking to uh, Paul Solomon's the guy I've been speaking about who I worked with at Porky's who taught me a lot. We were talking a couple of years ago and uh, I was saying to him, you know, I do, uh, I do some lecturing now and that kind of thing. You know, not very often, but every now and then I'll do a talk or something. And he was saying, he, he lives in Bangkok at the well, certainly did at the time. He was saying he'd been approached by a school in Bangkok to see if he would be the sort of mastering lecturer at their university or whatever it was. And he turned it down. I said, well, that's that's such a shame because you taught me so much and, you know, you have so much knowledge. I think you'd be really good at it. And he said, the problem with trying to teach mastering is there actually isn't a massive amount of technique. You know, there is some technique, don't get me wrong, but 
it's mostly about the listening and there's no shortcut to it and you can't teach someone how to listen they just have to do a lot of it you know the technique wouldn't take that long to cover but knowing the techniques of mastering isn't going to make you a good mastering engineer so you're absolutely right you know the kind of button pressing side of things that's not like that it is important clearly it's clearly it's very important but it's the decisions that you make that really are the kind of fundamentals of of what we do in terms of if you're going to change something you know why why have you made that decision what um you know what are you hoping to achieve but anyway so sort of getting back to my my kind of traineeship as a, a mastering engineer i think it's probably still the case that you know you kind of pursue this similar sort of course which was um you know i was kind of let loose on like the compilation album mastering first off there's no clients in the room all of the recordings are things that have already been mastered and basically you just have to string them together in the right order you know balance them in terms of loudness so that things aren't kind of you know too far apart but you don't really you're not looking to change the sound of anything particularly because you know these are all pre-existing masters that have been through that process and approves and everything else you know and and through that that's kind of a good way uh, it's a good introduction to listening to a lot of different kinds of music and stuff that has been you know released has been mastered someone has said yeah i like the way that sounds so it was kind of a good sort of grounding in terms of listening to a lot of stuff and probably a good introduction to this whole idea of um creating something that's like a whole you know out of a, a bunch of sort of disparate pieces of music yeah exactly very much so and also as well like whenever whenever anyone says to me you know what is mastering you know the first part of the answer that i usually give is um to discuss the sort of technical aspect of creating a master that needs to, you know, a CD master or a vinyl master or a master for iTunes or whatever it is. Usually there's a certain amount of technical criteria that need to be adhered to for that master to be successfully manufactured from. And, you know, it was a good introduction to that as well, you know, understanding about metadata and subcode and that kind of thing. Um, which is all sort of vitally, vitally important. And it's good it was a good way of kind of learning that without having to worry too much about, is this track too bright? Is it too dull? You know, is it loud enough? Is it too loud? Do you know what I mean? I didn't really have to worry about the sort of creative side of things. So that was really the sort of first stuff. And then um, we were lucky back then. We, you know, one of our clients was Trojan Records, who, you know, obviously big reggae uh, and dub catalogue. And, you know, they reissue a lot of stuff from their catalogue and you know and I, I kind of got involved in doing all of that so the only thing that I knew about kind of reggae or you know dub or kind of sound system culture before I started work at Porky's was Bob Marley do you know what I mean and you know all of a sudden you you know you've got like some obscure rare iRoy recordings or whoever it is you know toots or or whatever and you're hearing all this stuff and all of a sudden, you know, my eyes and my ears, uh, you know, were being open to just this wealth of music, which I possibly would never have, you know, really kind of got into before. You know, we used to do, we had another, uh, it wasn't my client, but, um, you know, I do some work for them. We had a big uh, Northern Soul catalogue 
label. You know, so I'd be hearing all this, like, you know, all these rare Northern Soul gems. And it was just amazing, you know, just to have this, like, you know, all of a sudden you feel like you've tapped into, you know, the music matrix and, and all this stuff is kind of just being given to you to listen to. It was, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. These days, you are... Uh are probably best known for working on dance music records and yeah. electronic records. Um, when when did you kind of tap into that? Well, pretty early on, I'd say, really. You know, in my sort of early teens, I was I was kind of into metal and rock music. And then, you know, in my, my sort of later teens, I got more into the more kind of independent side of like alternative rock and indie so you know bands like the cure and kind of nirvana sort of came through you know when i was in my late teens and you know the whole kind of seattle scene and um that kind of thing and it wasn't really until i was kind of uh, you know sort of 17 18 that dance music really had any real effect on me you know when I sort of you know went to a club for the first time and all of a sudden it made sense you know which it didn't really make sense to me prior to that you know I mean I yeah apart from Aphex Twin bizarrely you know I bought Selected Ambient Works when it came out which was kind of before I really got into electronic music and I absolutely loved that record but it didn't make any sense to me it, it was like music from another planet from another world but I I liked it. But, you know, I started going out clubbing and then, you know, just stopped listening to anything that had like any kind of live instruments in it, you know, for, for like a couple of years. Um, and so when I started at Porky's in, uh, in 97, you know, I was just only, you know, on day one, I was kind of only interested in electronic music. But like I say, it was great because all of a sudden I started hearing all this all this other stuff. But, you know, my kind of passion at that point in time, I would have said, would have been, you know, house and techno. And speaking of Aphex Twin, uh, at least on Discogs, the first credit on the first page that you get is for a Reflex record. It is. I farted by frequency. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. It's... it's um, as you listen to it, there's a link to a like a YouTube um, thing, and I, I remember doing that record. It's the first record that I got a credit on in terms of my name, which was one of the proudest days of my life when they um, gave me that finished copy and it had my name on it. Because you know, like probably like a lot of people, I'd grown up reading the credits on the back of album sleeves, and you know, just looking. And assuming it was this kind of glamorous world, you know, the music industry, studios and all this kind of thing and, and just wishing I could be a part of it. And when I got mastered by Matt Colton at Porky's Mastering on the back of I Farted by Frequency, I was kind of in that world. Uh, it tickles me to this day that it's a comedy hip hop record about breaking wind and, uh, you know, not something a bit cooler. And I love the fact that it's the first thing that comes up on Discogs. Um, you know, that just kind of amuses me. And was that a, was that a CD release or a, a vinyl release? Uh, that was, um, well, it was CD and vinyl, but what happened with Reflex is for a lot of their stuff, they started, uh, they'd still do some stuff with uh, Paul, where Paul would do the CD and the vinyl, but a lot of their stuff, they'd do the CD with me first and we'd compile it and, you know, EQ everything and sequence it and, you know, get everything sounding how they thought it should sound. And then the vinyl would be cut from my CD, masters 
you know, from my sort of compiled, well, you know, we, we'd put it on DAT. It would be like a compiled sort of vinyl cutting master from my uh, from my sessions. Um, so it did, I should think it came out on vinyl, but I would have only done the CD part. But I was kind of like the originator, if you like. Yeah, so they started working with me very early on. And, you know, we kind of became good friends and we did a lot of records together. And that was, um, I think, working with Reflex from such a sort of early age really shaped my view on what is right and wrong in a recording in terms of like they'd bring me stuff and you'd be like is it supposed to sound like that and they'd say yeah absolutely that's exactly how it should sound and after like a, a couple of sessions you're like okay cool I get it it doesn't things don't have to sound it's not necessary that we're trying to make things sound as polished and as smooth and as good and as right as possible because that's not necessarily right you know sometimes things can be fucked up and maybe it sounding wrong is better than it sounding right you know it's, because, it seems because like, wrong and right are the wrong words to use, but you see the point I'm making. Yeah, it seems that that it's more about understanding intent yeah. than about trying to fit, you know, one sound to everything. Yeah, exactly. And that was kind of like a big sort of light bulb moment, really. And also, you know, working with working with people like that that loved, well, still do love what they do, you know, and kind of were just pursuing their own path and were being successful and, you know, had their kind of integrity intact. You know, that was very, very cool. So so really from the get-go, I guess, you know, electronic music was kind of a big part of what I was doing. And uh, I, I guess the other thing that happened was... As I said to you beforehand, the, the the rooms that I was working in within the company were CD mastering only rooms, and this is before you know no one was delivering anything kind of digitally. You know, download didn't really exist in any way, shape, or form at that point. So it literally was CD or vinyl or cassette. You know, we used to do the cassette masters as well in in my rooms, but you know the vinyl cutting lathe is such an interesting piece of kit, and. There was a couple of other things, you know, I used to see how the clients kind of, you know, were just in awe of the engineers that could cut vinyl because it's, you know, it's quite difficult to understand from a sort of layman's point of view how it all works and stuff. And, and I thought, you know, that was, you know, that was kind of cool the way people were looking up to these guys as you know, I, I thought I wouldn't mind if someone looked up to me like that. Well, it's, a, it's is, an incredible piece of equipment. I mean, uh, it's right behind you now. Yeah. It looks like something you would find in a physics lab. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, it's it's old. You know, they're like classic cars. They're, uh, yeah. Huge. They haven't made them since like the 1960s or something. Uh, well, a bit later. So uh, this is a Neumann VMS-80 that we have here. And this model was launched in round about 1980, oh. hence the hence the number. I mean, the last design was the 82, which was a modification of this. And they stopped supporting vinyl in 84, 85, I believe. And Neumann were the last company making those. So, you know, we can safely say sort of 84, 85 was really when, you know, vinyl stopped being supported by the manufacturers of equipment. So, you know, the, the machines are old, and they're esoteric, they're temperamental, and they're absolutely brilliant. You know, they're they're wonderful. Um, 
horrific when they stop working. You know, you can have some real tearing your hair out moments and you need to know clever people to get them fixed. But, you know, there's something like magical and wonderful about them. And the other thing that, you know, I kind of, as I said to you, you know, I'd be doing like the CD master and then, you know, handing that tape to another engineer to cut the vinyl and that, that pissed me off. It's like, no, no, I'm the mastering engineer. I want to do, I want to do it all. You know, I want to learn everything. I don't see the point in there being a piece of kit in the next room and me not knowing how to use it. That seems nuts. I want to learn everything, you know. And also I want to see the whole release through. You know, I, I don't want to have to trust it to someone else. Not that I'm incapable of trusting anyone else or, you know, arrogant enough to think that only I can do a good job on it but more it's it's kind of like you know I want to see this thing through and, and kind of wrap it all up you know myself so Paul Solomons who was the, the sort of main engineer that you know he started teaching me how to cut vinyl and that was a very slow introduction is it quite a steep learning curve learning to use one of these machines cut vinyl well I think two things one is it's easy to you know, it, it's fairly easy to burn out the cutting head if you don't know what you're doing. And if you burn out the cutting head, you know, you're going to be looking at a bill of sort of £3,000 or something to get it rebuilt. And expensive mistake. It's an expensive mistake, you know, and you're going to be without that cutting head for like two, three weeks or whatever. So a very expensive mistake. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's not the kind of thing that, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've burnt out a couple of heads in my career and it's absolutely mortifying because, uh, you know, I mean, nothing pisses you off more because you know it's going to cost a fortune and it's going to be a nightmare. And how do you burn out the cutting head? Is that something that you don't take the proper precautions with the sound? Yeah, uh, well, essentially, yeah. I mean, um, usually it will be, well, two things. Uh, if you try and pass DC through it, that will quite possibly damage it. Um, but that's more difficult, but it's normally just a, an excess of high frequency. You know, you try and drive too much HF through it and, you know, you'll just burn out the coils. So my introduction to it was was very slow in terms of, you know, just, again, a lot of watching, a lot of listening. And the first things that I cut, you know, Paul would have EQ'd them and then I'd be like doing the actual operating of the lathe, you know. So, you know, just learning, okay, the, the kind of you press this button, that happens sort of thing. And I would say, you know, it probably took, you know, two years for me to kind of feel comfortable around a cutting lathe. I mean, I wouldn't say, I mean, that's not two years of like every day, you know, cutting records all day, every day, but um, bits here and there, we'd be doing stuff. Um, and at the end of that two year period, I wouldn't say that I was cutting good records. You know, I could cut a side and it could go to a factory and they could turn it into a record there wasn't a lot of brilliance going on because the thing that I find with mastering is that, um, you know, the difference between doing something like really well and just being able to do it is, um, you know, the difference is great in terms of how things sound, but usually it takes like some kind of, you know, like a light bulb moment in your head where you work out, ah, right, okay, well, hang on. Oh, so that's doing that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I've cut a lot of records and I think now, you know, I'm sort of reasonably reasonably good at it. Do you have a sense of when you started to hit a stride with mastering for vinyl records? Um, I don't know if this is just me, but I've often found that 
every 18 months or something, there'll be a period of a, like a couple of weeks or a month or whatever where I think, oh my God, I fucking cracked it. I, I totally, I'm totally owning this process. I'm, I'm really, really, you know, I'm, I'm a good mastering engineer. And then usually what happens is, um, you know, something will then go horribly, horribly wrong. And, you know, you'll realize that you don't know it all. And, you know, you remember the meaning of the word hubris. Do you know what I mean? I've often found that, you know, the times when I think, yeah, I'm absolutely fucking owning this shit now. And that's when the next week you realise that you've cocked something up massively, which is really good. You know, it's really, I, maybe it's just me, but I find it's, it's good for keeping my own kind of ego and arrogance in check. But really, I guess it probably wasn't till, you know, maybe kind of five years ago when I started it at Air. You know, joining a studio like Air Studios, you know, that is one of the best recording studios in the world, you know, staffed by some of the best staff of recording studios in the world. You know, when I when I joined there, I felt like I belonged there, but, you know, I, I was nervous when I started, you know. There were some very, very, very skilled people there. And I thought that I had it in me to be one of those very skilled people, but, you know, I was kind of nervous. Am I good enough? I think I am. But, you know, shit, now I am going to find out because if I'm not good enough, there's going to be people around who will know and they will tell me. But, you know, that didn't happen. And I kind of settled in. And I, I think, you know, the vast majority of people who work there kind of respected what I did and, you know, didn't see me as some kind of like chancer or, you know, faker who'd sort of bluffed his way in. You know, I was kind of there on, on merit. I guess it was kind of at that point that I started thinking, yeah, OK, well, that's, yeah. I don't think I know everything and I don't know everything now. You know, I, I, there's a lot more that I don't know about mastering than I do know about mastering. But I guess at that point I kind of felt like, you know, okay, I'm, you know, I'm not bad, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so Alchemy is your own studio. Yeah. When did you kind of decide it was time to break off on your own, do your own thing? So Alchemy is owned by myself and uh, two other engineers, my two business partners. And we formed this version of Alchemy 18 months ago. Um, Alchemy has been going in various different guises for many, many years. But it was really, I guess it was probably about two and a half years ago, uh, maybe three years ago when I was at Air. And... I've kind of always wanted to work for myself. You know, I'm I'm really stubborn and I like to make my own decisions governing what happens to me and, and my life and, and all the rest of it. And not that I always think that I'm right, but I'd rather make the decision myself, even if I get it wrong, rather than have things kind of placed upon me. Do you know what I mean? I'm not arrogant enough to think that I do know everything and every decision I make is the correct one, but I'd rather just make them myself. So, I, you know, it had always been in the back of my mind. I, I wanted to have my own studio and, you know, it was really kind of two and a half, maybe three years ago. Various things were happening at the time at Air Studios. It was up for sale. You know, there's questions over you know, how much support the owners wanted to put into it and and that kind of thing. You know, I'd been speaking to them and, and I was kind of looking to, you know, expand our department and I was looking for various things and, um, you know, I was doing a lot of business and I kind of felt like, uh, you know, I, sh I should maybe be having a little bit more control and, and, and various other things. 
and you know they were honest with me they felt that um they were quite happy with the way things were and so you know i just kind of thought well i kind of got two options here if i'm unhappy they've told me that things aren't going to change either i stay put and accept it you know and and sort of wear it or i do something about it myself so i decided that i was going to you know go out on my own and i felt that i probably knew enough people who would consider cutting records with me that if i set something up they'd give me a go you know they they'd kind of try us out and you know assuming i did a good job obviously you kind of hope that a few of them stick around and enough to make a business but i'd worked for a previous incarnation of alchemy in 2007 so i knew Barry and I knew Phil, um, who are my, my business partners in this uh, version of Alchemy. And they'd found this property that we're in now, which was, you know, kind of derelict and, you know, occupied only by pigeons and rats <laughs> and, you know, holes in the roof and all the rest of it. Damp and like just a horrific building really in West London. But it was a great space and we were kind of chatting and um, they were just like, you know, well, instead of going out on your own, you could come in with us, you know, and we'll just do it, you know, the three of us and you're going to be pretty autonomous. You know, we're not going to tell you what to do. We'll run this thing equally. And that seemed like a really good idea because one of the concerns I had about going out on my own was, you know, I'm a workaholic anyway. I know that. Um, would I ever stop? Would I ever go on holiday? You know, because if it's just me, if I want two weeks off, I have to close the studio for two weeks. That's difficult to do. Whereas if there's three of us, you know, there's other people around. There's, you know, other people bringing in, you know, money into the business and everything else. People who can deal with stuff, you know, in your absence. So, um, yeah, so we decided to do this. And, uh, you know, we've been slowly developing the facility as you see it now. We've got, you know, my room's been up and running since you know, pretty much day one. We've almost finished the second main mastering room. That will be fully operational in the next couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, we'll start on rooms three and four sort of fairly soon after that upstairs. Yeah, and uh, no regrets. I mean, one of the best decisions I've ever made. And, uh, you know, Touchwoods, on the whole, we've been extremely busy, had some real successes, done some really good work. And, you know, I think a lot of people kind of like what we're doing you know it's not obviously it's not all you know a, a sort of blissful upwards trajectory there's bumps along the road but it's it's been good it's been good for me and uh yeah and the the clients seem to like it too i mean you've really yeah. assembled a pretty impressive crew of uh, labels who come to you for work pretty good crew of artists who come to you for work kind of raises a question actually something that you brought up before about um about uh, this difference between like making something perfect and having something really sort of fit its intentions. Yeah. And um, kind of looking at some of the people that, that you've worked with recently, I mean, Lies is mm. one label that you've done work for. Yeah. You know, there's some pretty crazy stuff that comes out of mm. Modern Love that you do a lot of work for yeah, as yeah. well. I mean, this is music that doesn't sound perfect. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, with yeah. a Lies record, mm. it's going to sound pretty nuts. Yeah. I mean, how do, you, how do you... How do you approach that? Like if you have a record that sounds kind of noisy, that sounds kind of crazy, how do you make it sound right? I don't really know. <laughs> it's the short answer. I kind of, I think to a 
To a large extent, I think I kind of get with that aesthetic, and which is why I do a lot of it, you know, that kind of, um, you know, fuzzy, fucked up, you know, kind of weird stuff. Um, that all kind of comes to me quite a lot. And I guess it's because I, you know, the records that I do that sound like that resonate with people. And so therefore I, I must kind of get that. I guess. I mean, for me, I don't find that any more challenging than, you know, doing a classical record or, a, you know, a piece of pop music that's like perfect and pristine. And, you know, I don't, I don't see the distinction. I'm, my kind of philosophy, if, if there is one, which, you know, I don't have like an overbearing philosophy, but I just try and understand what the kind of, what are the intentions of, the people releasing this music like when music like creates an emotion within the listener and so i just try and understand what is the emotion what's the intention what what are we trying to make people feel here and i just try and get on board with that and then can we enhance that you know or at least if we don't enhance it let's make sure that we don't you know kind of take away from it let's not detract from it you know when you've got something that's you know it's it's fucked up it's distorted there's loads of hiss and you know it's all over the place you know i could go through and i could de-hiss it and i could kind of you know probably you know give me a day and i'll, I'll have it sounding you know like fairly polished but that's not the intention that's not you know the artist, the label, they don't want the listener to be hearing a piece of polished music. They want them to be reacting to something that's the opposite of that. So therefore that's my that's my brief. You know, let's not tidy this up. Let's keep it raw. Let, do we make it rawer? Do you know what I mean? Maybe we do. Maybe we go maybe we go more crazy with it. Do you think it's possible then, like for a mastering engineer to sort of have a signature sound? I would guess that probably most engineers would say that they don't have a signature sound and certainly most wouldn't want to have a signature sound. Now, whether people who, you know, view their work agree with that or not is different. I mean, one thing that I've noticed is that, you know, one of the reasons that you're here is uh, because of the work that I've done in sort of certain specific electronic fields. But I'm known in other fields, completely different fields. You know, I do... Um, you know, I do a reasonable amount of kind of vinyl reissues from tape, for example, you know, from recordings from the 60s, which have got nothing to do with techno or um, or electronic music or anything like that. And the people that work with me from those fields, for example, would assume that I'm best known for that. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of people sort of think uh, if they know me from their particular circle that, you know, I kind of exist solely in that circle. But it's probably the case that I exist in many other circles in a sort of professional capacity. But I mean, for me, I guess what I try and do, yeah, I, I try not to impart too much of myself if I can. Although everything that I do is obviously run through the prism of my hearing and my brain understanding what I'm hearing. For me, it's important to remember that it's not my record, you know, and I'm not, it's not my name on the front cover. You know, I'm not the most important person in this equation. And so I tried where I can to, you know, really just deliver what the client wants. And if that's something that I don't agree with, then we'll have a chat about it, you know, and I'll give the client my opinion if I think that there's another way that's better. 
but ultimately it's it's their call so if someone wants you know i don't i wouldn't have thought that people think you know i'm like the go-to guy for loud or the go-to guy for quiet do you know what i mean or whatever you know i i'd hope that you know if you want something loud people would say yeah matt can do that but he's not necessarily going to cremate the track you know he's going to aim to give you what you want you know so that that would kind of be my hope it's difficult to know whether that's what people think of me or not you know i just keep trying to do what i do you know keep improving my facility as as much as i can keep learning about what i'm doing and yeah you just like try and make each record as good as you can and you kind of figure that people will hear that and if they like what they hear then maybe they'll get in touch and see if you want to do a record with them kind of thing so like word on the street yeah you know, what you always hear is yeah. vinyl is back sales are up everybody wants their stuff out on vinyl is is that something that's been borne out um in your experience on sort of this side of the process uh yeah i mean it's 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 great uh first and foremost because it's well, it's great for me on a personal level because vinyl is my favorite way to listen to music. I think it's great because it's brought physical product back, which, you know, there was a whole bunch of people that, you know, of a certain age, let's say, and, and you know, even older people who used to own physical product who then sold it all and, you know, everyone was just kind of playing MP3 files and that kind of thing and you know record sales fell who'd have thought everyone was listening to stuff that sounds like shit and people were buying less music i mean you know i, I wonder you know what the equation there is now people are buying more vinyl and people are buying more and more vinyl because they're enjoying listening to music more you know it's not fucking rocket science and if people are spending more money in the recorded music industry then that's great obviously for me, um, sort of personal business level, it's great for all my friends who work in the industry um, because that money's coming in and supporting our industry. You know, it's brilliant because record shops, you know, record shops almost, you know, disappeared. And now you see, you know, great little record shops opening up all over the place and people are able to make a living from selling records, you know, which is, which is wonderful. Some of my happiest memories are going into a record shop and just, you know, losing myself for an hour, just flicking through the racks and, and pulling out stuff. And you'd, you'd buy a load of stuff. You had no idea you know, if you were going to like it or not, but you'd discover a, a whole bunch of stuff that way, which, you know, when you're browsing on the internet, you, you don't, it's a different thing, you know? So that's, that's really, really healthy. Uh, means that you know factories can hopefully carry on trying to press good records you know the one of the problems that we have with vinyl production the manufacture of vinyl is um you know the smaller the margins in it effectively the worse the product sounds you know there's a direct correlation I remember reading, I can't remember who it was, but it was a guy who worked in one of the big pressing plants in the states and he was saying that you know, if you were pressing a Michael Jackson record in the 80s, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, from memory, so this isn't going to be exact, but, you know, they'd throw away the first thousand copies, you know, to get to the run of test pressings, the first thousand copies that came off the press. The presses weren't operating 
at the correct temperatures, correct pressures. So those copies didn't sound good enough. It was only when you'd done a thousand that everything was kind of warmed up nicely enough to then say, okay, right now we can actually listen to some of these records. Obviously these days, maybe the pressing plants can afford to, you know, do like maybe throw away the first 20 and then they'll run the TPs. I mean, you don't even have thousand record pressings. Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of runs will be under a thousand copies for, you know, all told. So the, the that's what I'm saying. It's, um, you know, as the kind of margins and the numbers have got smaller, it's become more and more difficult to make good sounding vinyl. And so conversely, the flip on that is obviously the more records are being made in general, the more profit is there for the factories and that kind of thing. They can hopefully work it so that, you know, records start to sound better and better. Um, you know, and it's same with mastering studios and everyone else. You know, we can all invest a little bit more and we can kind of push this thing on, hopefully. And hopefully it can be a good, healthy period of sustained growth. And we're not looking at, you know, just like a, a sort of little bubble. But I, I think it's been really healthy for music in general. You know, there's not that many people that can actually make a living simply from selling recorded music. You know, I'm not naive enough to think anything different. But, you know, the fact that it can kind of help and if people selling vinyl you know there's the opportunity for it to help a little bit more than if they're just you know giving their tracks away for free on soundcloud or whatever then that can only be a good thing it can only encourage more people to do this and the more people making music you know the more kind of crazy brilliant audio recordings are going to going to come out which will only make your job more interesting. Which will make my job more interesting, more fun. And, you know, hopefully, touch wood, I'll still be here in 20 years' time doing this. You know, that's certainly that's certainly my aim. I've got, I've got no desires to do anything else with my life. Um, so, uh, yeah, fingers crossed. Long may it continue. <laughs>